On the inaugural episode of The Melting Pot, Veda Yannick, policy debate expert, joins me to discuss Corona Time, cracking open the case. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Though the outbreak of COVID-19 is a global crisis with different facets, today we'll be focusing specifically on the Trump administration's response and action towards the outbreak. Along the way, we'll delve into the impacts of the United States' response. So without further ado, let's crack the case. First, the best way to contextualize the Trump administration's COVID-19 response is a quote by Dr. Carter Mecker, who's part of the Department of Veterans Affairs. On January 20th, he sent an email to a group of public health experts around the country, stating specifically, any way you cut it, this is going to be bad. Something pretty indicative of the next three months of our life and likely for the rest of for the remainder of the year. The important thing to note with the Trump administration's COVID-19 response is that we, one, had early knowledge of the virus with reports from China occurring as early as early January, but the response was meddled and messy because a week after the first coronavirus case had actually been identified in the U.S. and six weeks after Trump started taking aggressive actions, the same doctor, Dr. Mecker, was already urging the United States' public health infrastructure to take greater action because the president himself was failing to start adequately addressing this. Trump started his first concrete action by limiting travel from China to the United States in the, be- in the end of January. He initially delayed this response even then because he was worried about angering China in the midst of the U.S.-China trade war. And even though the global community had already begun limiting travel from China even earlier than that, Trump still questioned this decision in itself. Another thing that complicated this single response was the fact that the first outbreak of corona and the more uh, reports of corona were really beginning um, to become relevant during the time of Trump's impeachment, further muddling the administration's response. But even with all of this, Things, uh, Corona began taking a further backseat with other actions taken by Trump as evidenced by his denial of the coronavirus and his comparison of the coronavirus to the flu, something that not only aggravated public health experts, but something that further confused the American public and, as we'll see later with Ms. Yannick, that, that ended up to confusing state and local governments. So... Up until February, Trump didn't really have much of any response other than continuing the denial and leaving the outbreak of corona in the hands of local and state governments. But eventually, by the end of February, Trump started beginning recommending social distancing measures, which is where we're at currently right now. And with that, it's, and even though we've covered the current response, it's important to look back at how even before January, President Trump was setting himself up to failure. Nina? Thank you, Kevin. So as we already can tell was that the current steps the Trump administration has taken have just basically been interesting in that of not taking necessarily as urgent as responses as other governments have had, as we've seen in like South Korea and in Europe. So how bad the coronavirus has gotten, we have to ask ourselves, were there steps already in place that could have prevented it to escalate to this level? The unfortunate answer is yes. 
as we can see, detailed specifically by multiple resources that the Trump administration had declined to use a nearly 70-page pandemic preparedness playbook created by the National Security Council's health unit during the Obama administration's second term. So this playbook, in summary, was written in wake of the 2014-2015 Ebola crisis. It sought to lay the groundwork for a seamless and coordinated response to avoid confusion and conflicting messages from federal officials such as that we're seeing right now. The book anticipated and gave instructions for officials to prepare for many of the same roadblocks that the Trump administration now faces in coordinating a response to the COVID-19 outbreak, including a lack of testing persistent and persistent shortages of medical equipment and personal protective equipment for healthcare workers. Something that we can see here is desperately what we need in the United States. So many people are wondering why did the Trump administration just decide not to use this 70-page pandemic preparedness book that came from an outbreak of a disease that was much more deadly than corona? Well, an, NH, an, NC, an NSC official quoted that it's quite dated and has been su superseded by strategic and operational biodefense policies published since. He added that the plan we are executing now is a better fit, more detailed, and applies the relevant lessons learned from the playbook and the most recent Ebola epidemic in the Democratic Republic of Congo to COVID-19. Now, whether or not the National Security Council was correct in ditching the book, what we can see now is that the current responses we're taking simply weren't the same as the book provided. Instead, we're seeing the Trump administration held holding series of training simulations based off of hypothetical pandemics caused by a virus that predicted with remarkable accuracy many of the problems and shortfalls currently plaguing the U.S. responses to the novel coronavirus outbreak. The simulation de documented some of the exact scenarios appearing now. These included lack of funding and shortages of medical equipment, delays, inconsistencies at the state and local levels, over school closures, and systematic problems in manufacturing more medical supplies. Clearly, we can see that the Trump administration had the equipment, had scenarios put in place, even had these simulations that they had in order to directly and be able to more efficiently handle outbreaks. But unfortunately, we're at the situation that we're at now, as Kevin's basically already said. So we've seen how it's affecting us and the lack of action. But more importantly, I think Kevin needs, is going to tell you what exactly a response the United States could have taken. So, Kevin, it's important to note that while that in addition to the United States completely disregarding the 70 page document that the 70 page document that the Obama administration left behind, there were a few other leading factors leading to our current response, as well as that's going to lead to the response that I believe the United States should have taken. Um, right now, the United States is leading the world with about a third of the world's total coronavirus cases, and this is further helped along by the fact that the United States' healthcare system is not only fragmented so that it's split amongst state and local governments to handle the outbreak, but this fragmentation also means that there's no clear universal mechanism to decide where responses are dictated and the effect, the efficacy of our response. The biggest example of this is Trump using nepotism to put Jared Kushner in charge and then having Mr. Kushner say that the federal stockpile of respirators and N95 masks was for federal use and not for state use. And the whole reason why the federal stockpile exists in the first place is that Fareed Zakaria of the Washington Post argues that um, the United States used to face a shortage of ventilators and protective equipment. So under the Obama administration, the federal stockpile was beginning to form as a response to the uh, 
to the Ebola virus, as Veda said, but even that stockpile hasn't been enough because we're continuing to face shortages and we're still paying the price. Uh, we're, we're paying the current price of defunding our healthcare system, the government, and politicizing independent agencies. So that's more steps leading up to our current response. But what the United States should have done is look towards other East Asian governments that have ha gotten high marks for handling the coronavirus. For example, uh, the Singapore Journal of Travel Medicine explains that one measure that Trump should have taken is bureaucratic preparedness. For example, a multi-ministry task force was set up before Singapore had its first COVID-19 case, and that provided a central coordination. On the other hand, the United States has had a decentralized response leading to the mess that we're in now. Another thing that the Trump administration could have done is encourage more sick leave. Um, COVID-19 is spread by people continuing to disregard social distancing and the United States' uh, the United States' uh, spirited sense of having to work uh, to support themselves and a lack of a community mindset has encouraged people to still mingle even with the onset of a global pandemic. So encouraging sick leaves and more commun and more like of a community oriented behavior would have helped defeat corona as people in Asia were willing to give up some of their necessary rights in order to ensure that the country as a whole could, could battle coronas. Another thing that Trump should have done is kind of going back to this lack of the, the federal stockpile not being used while by Kushner is distributing supplies and increasing clear communication. In Asia, the use of masks was only encouraged for ill people to prevent them from encouraging others. And the government actually distributed masks to every household. In the United States, we have a mass shortage caused in large part by consumers panic buying these masks, preventing hospitals from getting their hands on them, leading to a lack of supplies of not only hand, uh, face masks and respirators, but even everyday things that hospitals need like alcohol swabs and hand sanitizer. And finally, the United States should have implemented public screening, which was most notably seen in China. In China, public screening was required or testing to see if a person had a fever and the entrance and exit of almost all buildings and even from residential areas. The United States doesn't have any infrastructure like this set up right now. So even with the onset of social distancing, people are still able to infect other people because they themselves either don't know they're sick because they don't have testing or they're unaware of it because there's not wide, widespread public screening measures in place. And this decentralization and the messy response of the Trump administration is best exemplified by what Veda will talk about next. Thank you, Kevin. So not too far from our own hometown, we look at Laredo, Texas, which has been facing the problem that every other city in the United States is facing, lack of appropriate tests and irresponsible local action. So a private ER owner in the city spent over $500,000 to purchase 20 testing kits for COVID-19. But unfortunately for him, these tests were quickly seized from the local government in order to ensure that they would be appropriately handed out to the citizens and ensure that the more population had access to them. We can see Laredo Congressman Henry, Henry Kular, who helped facilitate the arrival of the test, is making sure that clinics have access to them. But unfortunately, what his actions don't tell you in many of the pictures posted on media was that these tests would only find active infection and not necessarily what we are looking for directly. So city health workers in Laredo quickly determined that these tests were unreliable and unusable. 
Even if they had passed the city's testing, it's unclear how helpful they would have been for the city at this early point in the battle against coronavirus. They were antibody tests, which seek evidence that someone's immune immune response has encountered the virus, not diagnostic tests that detect active infection. And unfortunately for the city of Laredo, these specific tests only made coronavirus only made the worries about coronavirus increase. Specifically, it made it to where citizens were disappointed and the mayor didn't necessarily have accurate responses set up in case that they needed. They're currently right now working on their plan B, which is acquiring appropriate tests wherever they can find them. But unfortunately, as Kevin's already mentioned, uh, how Kevin and I have already mentioned previously that the United States simply doesn't have enough accurate specific testing equipment for cities all across the country to be able to utilize in order to know whether or not citizens have COVID-19 or not. And we can see how this is putting a stress on local governments because they're just trying to get tests, not necessarily knowing if they're the correct ones as we saw specifically in Laredo. And what this has done is just simply put cities in more stress, public health services are stretching their limits, and specifically in Laredo, we can see that the city is just having a more escalated coronavirus outbreak without real appropriate responses put in place. And this specific scenario is just being multiplied in more cities, even more all across the country. So Kevin, if you wanna close us off. So while the impact of COVID-19 is not only felt by the changing of our lifestyles and is clearly more visible in like the devastation of Laredo and of New York City, one of the large, the larger, more widespread impacts of Corona that's being felt all around the world is the effects of Corona on the global economy. And one of the bigger problems with the Trump administration and with the way that COVID-19 is being dealt with all around the world is that projection models are not only unreliable, but they're constantly changing. This might be naturally explained by the fact that lots of new cases of corona appear every day, but while that might be what you're thinking, in reality, the number of corona of coronavirus cases around the world and the projected number of coronavirus cases is actually decreasing. And that's because Dr. Anthony Fauci estimates that the original U.S. estimate of 100,000 to 240,000 deaths, which initially devastated Americans around the country, is fortunately going to be significantly lower. This is smallly in part uh, the United States' growingly better response to COVID-19, but the larger underlying tone of this decrease in deaths is actually that our projection models are starting to become more accurate. Initially, the John Hawkins University of Medicine explains that COVID-19 projections were both, high, were, both, uh, were both exaggerated in an effort to convince people to take coronavirus more seriously and because no one really knew how bad coronavirus would be. This had, um, the re- so fortunately, COVID-19 isn't going to be as bad as originally thought, not only because of our efforts in battling it and in, and in our projections getting better, but unfortunately, the damage has already been felt. By the hyperbolized uh, predictions of COVID-19, that's led to investors around the world being more concerned with uncertainty in global stock markets, leading to the impending recession or depression, depending on how you look at it, being felt in economies around the world. So unfortunately, our flip-flopping of the, our response to coronavirus, not only in the pre-stages with Trump's denial and then in his emphasizing the necessity to combat it or Jared Kushner flip-flopping on the need to 
distribute the federal stockpile or keep the federal stockpile for the federal government to even the flip-flopping of whether or not how bad coronavirus is going to be has ultimately just created so much uncertainty that it's affected the entire global economy. And with that being said, it's clear that if you were going to apply all of this information we've given you in Accent Speech, um, I would explain the timeline of Trump's coronavirus response as we talked about from January to February, what he's doing right now, and possibly suggest what he should be doing. And with that being said, thank you for joining us. Goodbye. <laughs>